0: expect to learn a new way. Each week, you'll hear trainings, listen in on mini coaching sessions from people on your same path, and learn from other guest professionals. I'm so glad you've joined me. Hey there, welcome back to the Align Nutrition Podcast. Today, as I planned in my last episode, I have with me Sarah Dundar. She is a therapist here in Columbus, and I'm really excited to talk through this episode with you. I think you'll find it really, really helpful. When it comes to getting support and navigating our journey and healing our relationship to food, often some of the things we're up against are dealing with triggers and setting boundaries. And don't worry, we'll be talking through the definition of each of those, but we're going to go through kind of what is a trigger, what are some common triggers, what can you do about triggers, what are boundaries, and what are some examples of setting these boundaries because it's really important to know how to do that. But before we hop into that, I want you to get to know our guest, Sarah. So welcome, Sarah.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited.
0: Thank you for being here. And could you share with everyone who you are and what do you do in this work?
1: In this work, I am a licensed professional counselor in Ohio, which basically means I have a master's degree and really enjoy doing work with Mm -hmm. folks with eating disorders. I'm also a PhD student right now.
0: tons of free time i'm sure
1: so much free time (laughs) Um, we could report record a podcast every like two days if you wanted to um but no i love talking about this stuff just because i think it needs to be talked about more Mm -hmm. and we're sort of in this culture that is always talking to us about food and diet and all of that so let's have the other side of the conversation Mm -hmm. i think it's important
0: Absolutely. And I know in, you know, some of the clients that we've shared and the conversations we've had as colleagues, there's so much overlap between, you know, the dietitian's role, what, you know, what is it about food? What's going on here? And then the therapist's role where there's something deeper, there's something being stirred up. And so, when we're healing our relationship to food, we're going to be rubbing up against past experiences, other people who may not be on the same page as us, in addition to, you know, how are we thinking about food differently? And so I, that's something that I love the way that you practice as you kind of look at the culture and and what do we live in? And then, you know, what can you do for yourself as an individual and just the way that they play together?
1: Yeah, it's definitely dietitian work and mm-hmm. therapist work. are in this diagnosis mm-hmm. category kind of go together mm-hmm. really importantly, just mm-hmm. because we can do all of the psychological work. But if we're not addressing just the, the baseline of food mm-hmm. behaviors, then we're not really having the results that we want. And then mm-hmm. conversely, I would think that as a dietitian, you can address the food piece of it. But if there's stuff going on underneath, mm-hmm. we have to get to that.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And how did you get into this work?
1: (laughs) Speaking of getting to that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when I was in my master's program, learning to become a counselor, um, eating disorders were something that I was realizing that a lot of my classmates didn't really want to touch. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with liability. A lot of it has to do with like, frankly, stigma um, surrounding, you know, eating Mm -hmm. issues. So just over time, being in that environment in those classes, um, I just got kind of fed up with people not wanting to do this. And, And the more I learned about lethality and long term effects, and how important this is, it just really was grinding my gears that that we were the people that were supposed to be on the front lines of this. And, and a lot of us don't want to do it. And in addition to that, like I've had my own experiences with an eating disorder and sort of the process of recovery. But I didn't go into being a counselor with the intention of doing this work. If mm-hmm. anything, I thought, man, that's going to hit too close to home. I really don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But then over time, as I became more secure in my recovery and myself, I was just... Thinking, man, someone has to do it, and if I need to step up, I need to step up.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, and I'm I'm so glad you did. And you bring up such a good point where if we look at you know public policy and where a lot of our dollars are going in terms of mental health research, treatment, et cetera, eating disorders are not at the top of that list, and yet you know they're second only to the opioid crisis, the most deadly mental illness that exists. And you know at any given time. I think the most recent statistics, according to the National Eating Disorder Association, is that, you know, 20 million women and 10 million men will struggle with an eating disorder in their lifetime. And that's probably underreported and Mm -hmm. uh, under-recognized in care. But also beyond, uh, you know, more of like a clinically definable eating disorder, you know, how many people are on a spectrum? of concerns around food that that they may, you know, really grapple with some of this stuff. And, and you know, when it comes to prevention and addressing that, most people, if it wasn't you, there's was probably somebody in your life that, you know, has been touched by an eating disorder or struggled with food or struggled with their weight or gone off diets to the point where they feel like they don't know what to eat anymore. or It's impacting, you know, anxiety, depression, et cetera. And they're ending up in your office.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to have a full-blown eating disorder to have disordered eating. Mm -hmm. And I think we get to this place in the conversation where we almost devalue, Mm -hmm. you know, if you don't hit the exact diagnostic criteria of anorexia nervosa, then, you know, maybe there's not a problem, but there is a problem. Yes, Um, So I think that in itself stops a lot of people from mm-hmm. presenting mm-hmm. for treatment. Yep. But it's,
0: I mean, every disorder starts somewhere. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And I also appreciate that, you know, you're willing to go in this work with your history too. There's, I think, a lot of people who work in this field where, you know, there's this idea of, I, I'm leading with my professional expertise and my experience in this work. But I do, you know, secondarily have, Uh, personal experience where you can really empathize with people and really get it and really deeply understand it in ways. But you're, you know, you're still supporting them from that more professional place. But
1: I think it's really cool. Also, um, I try not to connect too much um, of Client sessions Mm -hmm. to myself personally, Mm -hmm. just because I want to make sure it's always therapeutic and helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is helpful uh, to be able to sort of see a problem Mm -hmm. before it even comes up. Mm -hmm. So when we look forward to like holidays, or we look forward to, you know, it's going to get warmer and it's going to be swimsuit Mm -hmm. time. And, and, When someone is sort of dealing with their first round of treatment, they might not see that coming, but I see it like a freight train. I'm like, okay, let's get ready for this before it even happens. Exactly.
0: (laughs) The secret knowledge running in the background.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, and I know that's one of the things that led to what we want to talk about today. You know, oftentimes I think a lot of my listeners and the people that I work with and likely the people that you work with too... We're looking at, you know, we've made this declaration. We're starting to take the steps to change how we think about food, to unlearn a lot of the things that we've learned about eating and our bodies and what's good and what's bad and what does all this mean. And what we find out is that it's kind of countercultural and we're living in this world where we're going to be presented with things that are going to be hard for us over and over again. And so in the spirit of kind of being ready for them and seeing them coming, I thought maybe we could talk about, you know, kind of looking at you know triggers and boundaries and kind of get into that. But I think first and foremost, we need to define, you know, what is a trigger? I think we hear that word thrown around so much and we might think we understand what it means, but I know you actually really deeply understand <laughs> what it means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And trigger is
1: one of those terms that has been just taken into the mainstream and has become kind of a catch-all for anything mm-hmm. that we don't like mm-hmm. and that's not what a trigger is a trigger mm-hmm. actually has a definition mm-hmm. so um, basically when something is triggering it's causing an emotional activation in us we sort of feel that mm-hmm. in our body mm-hmm. so um, something will happen it could be something we see it could be something someone said it could mm-hmm. be a feeling in our body and It sort of sets off that fight or flight Mm -hmm. signal in our brain um, that tells us that we're not in a safe place. Mm -hmm. That's what a trigger is doing, which really evolutionarily is good. Like Mm -hmm. that has kept us safe in the past. But then when we look at a disordered brain, Mm -hmm. um, the triggers that are setting off those red Mm -hmm. flags aren't actually dangerous. We're just perceiving them as
0: dangerous. Gotcha. So that fear response, and it's putting us into that, it almost sounds like it could be even slightly like disproportionate. Like if you were in a situation where maybe um, you were eating something and all of a sudden, you know, you're feeling really uncomfortable in your body, like you said, you might be feeling something and You're like, why, you know, why is this coming up? And then you're kind of checking in with yourself and realizing like, oh my gosh, you know, I used to never allow myself to eat this and, or I used to always feel guilty if I was eating this or I would only eat this type of meal if I had worked out or whatever. But that emotional experience almost feels like kind of disproportionate or like, like you said, that kind of like really taking over. And that's, what would you say, can we talk through some examples perhaps of like, what are maybe some common triggers that you've seen some of your clients face yeah almost
1: universally Mm -hmm. numbers Mm -hmm. of any kind whether it's calories whether it's weight on a scale Mm -hmm. um whether it's the amount of calories that someone else ate Mm -hmm. that they want to tell you about Mm -hmm. um a big thing too actually has been um putting the the calorie counts on menus yes that's like a new thing yeah that has come out that yeah, in recent just a, years. it's just a bummer, like for people yeah. that do this work, because uh, it's just not super therapeutic yep. Yep. for people. So I don't know that I've ever had a person with an eating disorder present in
0: my office that hasn't mentioned something about numbers. Yep the new pant size that they just had to purchase. Yeah. Yeah. It's like – I think because it's something that feels so defined, you know, and and there's so many like to your point about the definition of a trigger and bringing up the strong emotional reactions. like – I last weighed this when I was going through, you know, that significant period in my life that was so hard. And these two numbers are linked up together so intensely. Or the last time I had pants this size was when, you know, I was bullied in college or rejected in, you know, a social situation or it's, or, or my doctor, you know, told me that, I, you know, now obese, you know, it's like this kind of word. And I hate that. I'm saying air quotes, you know, around that term. Um, it's, it's there, those numbers are are just really stay in your brain.
1: Yeah. And we have to deconstruct what does the number mean? Mm -hmm. Because a number is just a number until we assign some sort of meaning to it. So like Mm -hmm. you were saying, whether it a number is tied to a positive memory Mm -hmm. or a negative one, we have to really take a look at what the numbers mean to us and figure out why it carries the importance that it does. Mm -hmm. And then move from there to deconstructing that whole, you know, mental structure of let's base my worth let's base my level of okayness to numbers
0: yes i'm almost hearing this process that your brain is using as you're describing that so we we, we realize we're being triggered by something cuz we're experiencing a strong emotional response to like in this example you know a certain weight or a certain amount of calories and then i hear you kind of talking through this like almost like non-judgmental narrative with yourself of like I, I I feel this intense emotion. I this is the number, this is the thing that set it off. And now I'm kind of checking in with myself because that means there's something else going on here. I've assigned some meaning. There's a connection to something deeper or in the past. And and what do you, what do people do with that? Like it's sounds like you're you're kind of trying to like start to take stock in and what does this mean to me and and really acknowledging with themselves. Like what is what is more like can you describe more? what you were sharing there.
1: Yeah, and this this idea of non-judgmentally experiencing your emotions mm-hmm. is really at the core of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. We talk about mindfulness all the time mm-hmm. in mental health. And it's not necessarily yoga and meditation mm-hmm. all the time. Mindfulness is just having experiences Of our emotions Mm -hmm. that don't necessarily have to have a weight to them. Well, for lack of a better term, a weight (laughs) to them. Um, But it doesn't have to mean anything other than this is an emotion that I'm experiencing. We assign the meaning, sometimes automatically, we assign the meaning because we're so used to assigning it. But then when we really get into the practice of mindfulness, we are intentionally stripping that emotion of
0: its meaning. Yep. Yep it's it's almost like okay if the pathway goes I'm experiencing intense shame I'm at the doctor's office being weighed I have been told that you know I'm too you know I weigh too much and so now so that's kind of the the trigger that's happening and then you know that mindfulness of I'm I'm feeling the shame I realize what's going on here the the probably the next action in your mind is oh I need to lose weight and so it's like this kind of where mindfulness comes in it's like what do we kind of do with that and it sounds like it's you know it's like this acknowledging this checking in this tuning in but not that you need to go off and do something about it but it's like the way you're describing it i'm like this involves so much self compassion just being able to say how i'm feeling is valid probably and let's check this out a minute
1: yeah exactly it's kind of like how would you talk to someone that you loved mm-hmm. About this mm-hmm. if this were your child or if this was yourself as a child mm-hmm. who is having this experience at the doctor's office maybe you know fell on the BMI chart somewhere mm-hmm. you know that they they're uncomfortable with mm-hmm. would you tell the child version of yourself mm-hmm. okay well for the next three days or however long we're, we're gonna restrict mm-hmm. um, or would you say you know if you were underweight before mm-hmm. and we're making healthier decisions mm-hmm. for ourselves, then maybe that is
0: something that I can accept. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's what We have other episodes talking about the BMI, so we don't need to go off on that tangent. Right, exactly. like, I can hear your wheels turning over there. Yeah, I'm
1: like, man, I don't want to say the BMI and have anyone be like, oh, she loves the BMI. No. She hates the BMI.
0: But let's talk through a couple more triggers because I think that like to your point earlier of being able to project this out for people and kind of see where they're headed before they might even know – what are some other common triggers that you find? We've talked numbers. Mm -hmm. What are some other ones that you see your clients encounter?
1: Yeah, definitely old pictures of ourselves, Mm. sort of the like sick pictures of ourselves where maybe we were hitting those numbers. Maybe we were in the pant size that we thought was acceptable Mm -hmm. for us, but We were really sick. Mm -hmm. We had an
0: eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Or we were on an extreme diet, or maybe we were depressed and we weren't taking very good care of ourselves. Like that meaning that's assigned with that, Mm -hmm. that was the best version of me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) I think those looking back at that, Mm -hmm. you know, Facebook, for example, loves to throw us our, uh, guess what you were doing two years ago? Guess what picture you took at this period of time? And that can be really damaging to somebody who is triggered by
0: those images. Absolutely. I think a lot of times I feel like comparison is one of the biggest triggers that we talk about. And so we think, oh, that means, you know, looking at someone else in the room or somebody who fits, you know, the current societal idealized body, you know, thin, white, cisgendered, what, et cetera, whatever. But that that is all often the comparison is with old versions of ourselves specifically in photos.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah and what happens when For example, you're a parent Mm -hmm. who has a teenage or, you know, a Mm preteen child who is, in essence, like looking at an old picture of Mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. So now we're in this place. Again, eating disorders can impact people just across the lifespan. Mm -hmm. It's not a young person thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So what happens when we see our teenage kind of self Mm -hmm. and we love this person and we spend time with them but it's also triggering to
0: think okay that used to be what my body looked like and maybe not so much at this point yep absolutely i i think that can happen so much and and i think for a lot of my a lot of my clients and probably yours too you're going through that similar process of you know facebook memories reminding me this or getting ready to go on this girlfriend trip this year and remembering what i wore last year how i thought i looked last year what i weighed last year and comparing to that past version of okay i'm acknowledging how i'm feeling about it it's causing me to feel anxious about this trip or that picture all of a sudden made me feel like I, I'm not okay as I currently am, but that you don't need to take action on that, but to acknowledge this and, and to give yourself some self-compassion. We make it sound so pretty and easy. We realize yes. that there's so much more involved, but kind of outlining that process, I think can be really important to expect these things to come up. It doesn't mean you're backsliding or you're not in this, but that, but that this is stuff that's been intertwined with your life.
1: Yeah. And you and I were kind of talking before we started recording about, it's a little bit of a tough sell mm-hmm. with clients when we get into the conversation of, yeah, you're signing up for recovery mm-hmm. and that's hard mm-hmm. because our culture is not built to facilitate your recovery. Yeah, To sell someone on, yeah, this is going to be a struggle, um, but it's worth it. Yeah. And let me explain why. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's difficult for people to hear you are swimming upstream against so many factors that, that if they had their way would keep you sick. Yep.
0: Yep. And those old thoughts and patterns. And I, I agree. And I think it's like the bigger arc here is resilience where, Mm -hmm. like you said, it sounds terrifying and gosh, I'm, you know, really have a hard sell here and I'm sure this sounds so wonderful. But that you, you have to kind of repeat this over and over. And, and then I think the good news is, is that you get better at it. You know, now you know for the next weekend away where, you know, there's going to be a bunch of pictures snapped of you and you might be wearing shorts or a dress or, you know, a tank top or whatever, you know, what, how is that 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 might be challenging or that's a familiar triggered feeling that you might be having and you're able to more easily check in with yourself and kind of know immediately what's going on.
1: Yeah, definitely. And when we look at those weekends away um, or just holidays or special occasions, mm-hmm. sometimes we get in these social environments and we think we are in a better place with our food anxiety than mm-hmm. maybe we are. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times what will happen to folks is they feel really confident at you know the Super Bowl party or at 4th of July mm-hmm. or whatever the case is, they feel really confident about just freely eating Mm -hmm. the things that sound good. And they're surrounded by people who are enjoying food. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do it too. And then they wake up the next day. And that eating disorder hangover, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better term, kicks in. And suddenly we're really tempted to restrict Mm -hmm. that next day because we pushed ourselves too far. Yep. So, you know, a a lot of times I think the the misconception is the goal of eating disorder recovery and eating disorder work is to be able to just do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And somehow that not being damaging when really the eating disorder mindset is structured mm-hmm. so we have to look at recovery at least until we get towards a place of intuitive eating mm-hmm. we have to look at recovery as it needs structure because that is the part of this that
0: our brain is used to sure sure and it's it's as you describe that it makes me think of you know, there's this aspirational part of, hey, I want, in like an, almost acknowledging a trigger. And I think a way that maybe someone else wouldn't have thought about it or wouldn't, um, like I, I hope that we're like saving someone from something and talking about this right now, like where. Maybe you're feeling triggered that day because you have been doing a lot of things that are counterintuitive to some of your old thoughts. So waking up and feeling more anxious or guilty is actually testament to, hey, you've really been pushing against some of these old beliefs and and challenging this narrative that you have with food in your body. And so that just cumulative added up. And wore you down a little bit, almost like a workout. Like you, uh, oops, we went too hard on it. Good, you know that's, and now you're a little sore today. And kind of thinking about like, hey, aspirationally, you wanted to do the things and eat the things, but I hear what you're saying is like, there's also this really important therapeutic part of this journey that is being able to pace yourself and and kind of, you know, get back up again and push up against these triggers. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, and I think another skill, we talked about kind of this part one, like triggers, like we live in a triggering triggering world, we're going to encounter them over and over. and And I think we, you talked through beautifully, like what we can really do with that in terms of acknowledging it, being mindful, not necessarily taking action, even though it feels like that's what we need to do. I think sometimes there are actions that we can take and Again, another term that I think is thrown around is the word boundaries. And so I was wondering if you could talk through um, you know, kind of what are boundaries and what does it mean to set one and and how does that fit into this conversation?
1: You know, counselors love a boundary. <laughs> we love a good boundary. <laughs> I think the misconception though about boundaries is that they always have to be sort of put up against somebody. Mm-hmm. Like this person is negative for me, so I'm gonna put up a boundary. And it almost feels aggressive sometimes Mm -hmm. in the way we talk about it. But then there are also boundaries that are not interactional. They're not against somebody. They have nothing to do with anybody but ourselves. (laughs) And we have to put up these mental boundaries that limit ourselves so that we with the acknowledgement that the world is not going to change for us. So what do we have to set up for ourselves that keeps us safe? Mm-hmm. Because that's what boundaries are supposed to do. They're supposed to keep us safe, whether that's emotionally,
0: physically, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be, that's their purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's And that, it, yeah, it's touching all of these different areas. Let's talk through maybe some examples of some boundaries that we might have to set, whether it's, you know, that more like physical or emotional or situational. What are some common ones that you tend to see your clients need to do?
1: I would say a big one is setting boundaries with the places that we go. Mm -hmm. There are some places that are not constructive for recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that sort of comes to mind Mm -hmm. as we're talking is different gyms. Mm -hmm. There are some gyms that have a culture Mm -hmm. that is really disordered. Mm Yeah, I don't want to like call out any particular gym mm-hmm. because it can be any of them,
0: right? It's yeah, not everyone like a, has like different situations. So like somebody, it might be a certain gym. Somebody, it might be a certain restaurant or mm-hmm. a certain way of eating or a certain person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But so, I like the idea of the places. Yeah, places, Um,
1: even like certain grocery stores. If mm-hmm. they're too big, if they're too, just too many choices can be really triggering. But then there's sort of the online spaces, that, you know, we might be innocently scrolling through Instagram or Tumblr or Facebook and... TikTok. (laughs) TikTok. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm not on TikTok though. So I think like people, you know, are way ahead of me on that. (laughs) But, uh, you know, there, there are these online places that... Seem innocent or maybe even seem helpful Mm -hmm. to us, but they're just not. Mm -hmm. And there's no hard and fast rule for this. That's why boundaries are so personal Mm -hmm. because what is helpful to your recovery might not be helpful to mine. And what I need in this moment might not be what you need. And it also might not be what I need in a month. Yep. We can set boundaries that are fluid, that as we grow in our recovery, they can change and they can shift. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to set them
0: now. Yep. And that's, I think the way we're talking about boundaries right now. And the reason I wanted us to talk about them paired with triggers is because I think they go together in cert- in so many ways, like, you know, how you were talking about like the trigger of being weighed and kind of what, you know, and the idea of like, you know, not, maybe there's not a the particular action, like the old action would be, I must lose weight, but that you know, and acknowledging your feelings as, as what's kind of the shame that you might have felt, you know, on the doctor's office scale. But then there are boundaries that you can take from that of, okay, now my boundary is, you know, I ask to be weighed backwards, or I ask my doctor if it's really necessary to weigh me today, or ask that they, you know, black that out in my chart and I'm not having to see those numbers. I ask them not to talk about it with me. And and that like so that's like a boundary that's circumventing, you know, it, it's like kind of acknowledging and honoring the way you you felt triggered you may not take the old the same old action that you would have been prompted to take before but with a boundary you can can take a new action that feels supportive to you
1: definitely and using our triggers to inform our boundaries is going to be really important <laughs> i actually encourage clients of mine to write down their triggers mm-hmm. when they experience one they're concrete things that happen so if we sort of take note of these triggers as they come up, they can inform the boundaries that we need to set to keep ourselves safe. Mm -hmm. Triggers are going to change over time. Our boundaries will change in response to how the triggers change. So they're really kind of two pieces of the same puzzle. They Mm -hmm. fit together really well. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes if we look at just triggers in isolation, we can start to feel helpless. If we look at boundaries in isolation, we can feel cruel. Like we're setting boundaries, um, you know, maybe just arbitrarily, but they're not arbitrary. They are in
0: response to our triggers. Yep. Exactly. it's, And I know one of the um, boundaries that you mentioned uh, before we started recording was like, you know, those particular accounts or certain things that are bringing up old things in you. And in that kind of like the example of comparison to yourself and, you know, from Facebook or Instagram memories, like... Let's maybe turn that setting off if that's not really helpful to us Um, or, you know, looking at these old accounts and it reminds you that, you know, you were striving for, you know, the most toned body or whatever. And maybe it's, you know, filling your, you know, feed with with other things. And and I know that's like common advice, but I think as it relates to triggers and boundaries, it shows us the depth of these things and they can really, really help us um, by by making these changes or a certain... Somebody that you're close with is on you know, some type of weight loss journey or a very restrictive diet and you realize that when you're around them, it feels lonely because you've opted out a lot of that or it feels uncomfortable because you have some thoughts about what they're doing, but you also aren't really in a position that you want to talk about it. But you can set kind of like a silent boundary with yourself of like, I will, you know, for the meantime, I'm going to ask this friend to do other things besides eating together or you know other activities or or maybe change the topic if they start talking about it.
1: Yeah, and how do we lovingly approach people in our lives about that? Because that feels very confrontational mm-hmm. when we say, "Okay, maybe you are doing this crash diet that is incredibly triggering for me mm-hmm. that you know, I don't necessarily think is helpful mm-hmm. in any way for you." But also it's your life and you're allowed to do this, but I am not able to participate in these conversations with you. Yep. There's a way to lovingly set those boundaries that, that maintains respect for their autonomy, but also your recovery.
0: Yep. That's one of the things that you were talking about before we recorded too. And you, you talked a little bit about earlier is this idea of, you know, we have this bigger culture where we're learning all of these things, you know, whatever your struggles with food are, you didn't make those up yourself. You got the idea somewhere at some point and, you know, so did your friend, so did your aunt, so did your mom, you know, and and so it's like that, I think the, the trigger and the boundary, it's sort of like you were saying, you're like, if we acknowledge our triggers and we make these boundaries, you know, hopefully, you know, society will continue to change with us. And obviously we have, you know, policy, we have activism, we have these kind of bigger um, types of changes that we might be making, but also, you know, if you're opting out of things, you know, the, you're, you're not doing noom, even though your friend is. And if they ask and you say, you know, I, I, I've, I've decided that stuff, you know, is really harmful to me and I'm not doing it that maybe eventually companies like that might not have as many dollars being put towards them and society can change in that way too, but that's a slower process. So how do you set that boundary today? How do you take care of yourself today? Well, again, acknowledging, like you said earlier, like we're swimming upstream mm-hmm. in this culture. And so I think these individual skills of recognizing a trigger, having compassion with yourself, being not non-judgmental, acknowledging what's going on, setting a boundary, taking a new action, are really important to kind of repeat over and over again.
1: Right. We're going to do our boundaries on our individual level. Know that there are lots of other people, um, like like 30 million other people, (laughs) who if they choose to walk down this road of recovery, they are also going to be setting boundaries. And what does that do over time to the companies that are built on disordered thinking and disordered behaviors? Unfortunately, we live in our capitalist culture that money is the thing that moves the conversation forward. So if these companies and these individuals stop being successful financially because the general cultural mindset is shifting... Yes, it takes time, but that's how actual change takes place. But it really does start with our own decision to personally make the changes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I I think holding this big picture in mind, like you said, it can feel aggressive or cruel or uncomfortable at times. And it's just this reminder that, Hey, I do. I'm, I'm, I have my emotions and I know what I'm going through. And I, I'm, I'm more or less focused on what I need as an individual, but I'm not so. You know, I, I understand, my friend, like the way you said it, you're like, I get what they're going through. I get why they were vulnerable. So I have to take care of myself. But I also, I'm, I'm morally just mad at, at the culture than, than them as an individual, but um, watching out for yourself and, and what you need to do. So thank you so much for having this discussion with me. You know, I think when I started this podcast, one of my goals was to bring in other other expertise other And I think especially with therapy and like the depth that that brings to this work. I mean, we always talk about how healing your relationship to food is an incredibly difficult process. Stuff we talked about today is one snippet of why. I mean, this stuff touches so many areas of your sense of self, your life, your experiences. It's, it's impacted you both biologically and psychologically. Mm -hmm. And, and so thank you so much for, for sharing some of your expertise. I know you do fantastic work with clients. What do you have coming up in your business and and where can people find you?
1: Well, people can find me right now sitting at my desk doing (laughs) (laughs) schoolwork. No, um, I am actually on Facebook and Instagram at Sarah with an H Dundar counseling. You know, sometimes I'll hop on there and give you my two cents about things <laughs> similar to what we're talking about here. Professionally, I am really focused on just helping individuals with the things that we're talking about. You know, I definitely value the the advocacy that happens on a large scale level, but I also really value the changes that individuals can make and how impactful that is for them and for their families. So that is where my focus is right now.
0: Thank you. And that's, I I want to say that if you feel that professional help would support you on your journey, you know, working with a therapist and a dietitian is ideal contact information to work with me or with Sarah links to both of those things will be in the show notes. If you you know, therapy and working with a dietitian or something that's not accessible to you for any reason, then I hope this has given you some context and some ideas and some um, thoughts today uh, to help. So thank you again, Sarah, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great until next time. And we'll talk to you then. Take care. Thanks to you for listening find me on Instagram at align nutrition. Let me know if you like this or if you have other topics or ideas for the podcast. I love hearing from you. If you've gotten something out of this, help us reach more people who need this message by subscribing in your podcast app. A nice rating and review also helps us reach more people and is so appreciated. I hope you enjoyed this episode and until next time.